If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Obadiah. We've been in Obadiah. We started Obadiah last, uh, last week, and, and uh, if you still don't know where it is, there's no shame in going to the table of contents first, okay, um, and finding it there and going there. If you got one of our Bibles from the welcome table, it's on page 819. Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's, uh, it's, uh, he's one of the minor prophets. We'll just a quick recap here, right? Minor doesn't mean insignificant. It just means short compared to the other prophets. They're long, um, or, or some of them are. There's 12 minor prophets. Obadiah is the shortest one uh, and the shortest book in the Old Testament. Uh, but again, it serves as a concise summary of the relationship between God and mankind that he has created. And then the rest of the Bible fills all of that out in, in detail. Obadiah makes it clear that there is a sovereign creator God of the universe, and this God has enemies, and this God has covenant people, right? Obadiah is the only prophetic book that's addressed specifically to a foreign nation and not directly to God's covenant people. But again, it's included in Scripture, which is God's word to his covenant people. And so Obadiah serves as a source of hope to them and to us that God is, in fact, a promise-keeping God. Now, last week we looked at the first nine verses, and the main idea uh, was that pride is the crowning characteristic of God's enemies, and God will dethrone all who exalt themselves over him. So that means that if, if pride is the crowning characteristic of God's enemies, then humility ought to be the crowning characteristic of God's people, right? But even as God's people, we have to admit that we struggle with pride, which is why we need constant grace from the one who alone sits on the throne, right? Jesus is the king, and he rules and he reigns on our behalf. We've been given that grace that we need through Jesus, through his spirit, through his word, and with his church. God's given us everything we need for life and godliness. So in today's passage, we're going to see that God is a God of perfect justice. And we're going to talk about why that ought to be terrifying for God's enemies and comforting for God's people to think about. So I want to read uh, Obadiah verses 10 through 16. Those are the verses we're going to be focusing on this morning and then pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. So he just had finished talking about how Obadiah or how uh, Edom uh, was uh, prideful and that God would bring them down from the heights. And he says this, verse 10, you will be covered with shame and destroyed forever because of violence done to your brother Jacob. On the day you stood aloof, on the day strangers captured his wealth, while foreigners entered his city gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. Do not gloat over your brother in the day of his calamity. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Do not boastfully mock in the day of distress. Do not enter my people's city gate in the day of their disaster. Yes, you. Do not gloat over their misery in the day of their disaster. And do not appropriate their possessions in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off their fugitives. And do not hand over their survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. 
As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and gulp down and be as though they had never been. Would you pray with me? Lord, we acknowledge that this is difficult to hear. And yet, it's in your word, and it describes who you are. And so we pray that this morning that we would see the, the God who is holy and just is also the God who is full of mercy and grace. Help us to see how these things work together. Bring comfort to your people. and Draw those who oppose you, not uh, not away from you, but to you in the grace that you so freely offer to us in Jesus Christ. We pray that your spirit would take your word, convict our hearts, and comfort us. Bring us to the feet of Jesus this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen. Anybody else get startled awake by that huge roll of thunder this morning? Yeah, a few people, right? It was so long and so loud. Um, now, if we think about for a minute that just the, the power that's displayed in a lightning bolt, right, and, and a crash of thunder, it's enough to make even the most stoic person tremble when it's close, when it comes near, right? But it's easy for anyone really to ignore when it's far away. Like, yeah, that, that woke me up, but I, I, I checked my phone, you know, like, where was that at? It's like, it's out there a ways. So just kind of rolled back over and went to sleep, right? Or laid there because the kids were crawling, calling, because it woke them up too. But the same thing is true. Like if it's easy for us to ignore the, the, the power and the might of lightning and thunder when it's not close to us, same thing's true when it comes to God's justice and wrath. In fact, if we're, if we're honest, we, we probably prefer to keep that thought far away, right? We just kind of roll back over and ignore it because it, the fierceness of it alone would make even lightning tremble. The scripture talks about God has the storehouses of lightning. They're his, yeah, that's his. The thought of God's wrath is so uncomfortable that some seek to erase it altogether from their belief system. In the end, everybody goes to be with him. But we can't erase history. We can't read Obadiah and say that God has no wrath. If we do that, then we also have to say that God has no justice. And I don't think any one of us wants a God that's not just. Even though the events that we'll read about in today's passage are like a rumble of thunder that, that happened off in the distance a long time ago, the reality of God's justice and wrath, it really ought to hit close to home for us this morning. And here's what we need to think about. Here's our main idea. Enemies of God's people are also enemies of God. And God will bring devastating judgment on all his enemies. Now, if we take that reality seriously, then we ought to take the gospel seriously. And as believers, we ought to share it with others as God commanded us to. And if you're an unbeliever in here, my prayer is that, that understanding the reality of God's wrath will drive you to the hope that you can have in Christ. Obadiah mentioned several different judgment declarations from God in our passage today, and each one of them is framed up as a day of judgment, beginning with Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, 
then moving on to Edom, and then finishing with the nations. And so we're, gonna, we're just going to kind of walk our, our, our way through these things. So we're going to start by looking at Jacob's, at Jacob's day of judgment, Israel, Judah, okay? Uh, as he describes it, even though he's talking to Edom here. So verse 10, you will be covered. He's talking to Edom. You will be covered with shame and des- destroyed forever because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. On the day you stood aloof, On the day strangers captured his wealth while foreigners entered his city gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. Do not gloat over your brother in the day of his calamity. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Do not boastfully mock in the day of distress. Do not enter my people's city gate in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their misery in the day of their disaster and do not appropriate their possessions in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off their fugitives and do not hand over their survivors in the day of distress. Now, last week we saw that Edom was a pride-filled nation and their pride made them enemies of God. And here we see that they're also enemies of God's people who also happen to be their relatives. Remember that the nation of Edom is, is descended from Esau who was Jacob's brother, right? Twin brother. The nation of Israel is descended from Jacob, and, and they, they were brothers. And the violence done by Edom in these verses becomes especially heinous then when we think about that it's not only done against relatives, but it's also in conjunction with another nation that's attacking their family. There's debate among scholars as to when Obadiah was written, but I think a good argument is made that it was most likely sometime around the Babylonian invasion in in 586 B.C. And in case you're unfamiliar with the history of Israel, here's like a lightning course, okay? Short, short version is that it started out as one nation under God, right? Uh, With with, uh, David as, as the king. And then David's son Solomon became king after him. Solomon died. What happened? The, 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 uh, the, the one kingdom split into two. Twelve tribes went to the northern kingdom. They were called Israel. They maintained that name. And uh, uh, Samaria became their capital city. The, the other two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, became the southern kingdom. Jerusalem became their capital city. And so uh, Obadiah uses the name Judah and Jacob interchangeably here, which is one of the reasons uh, that the arguments made that it's It's after the kingdom has split. God judged both kingdoms, north and south, for turning away from him in disobedience and idolatry. In 722 BC, God used the nation of Assyria to attack the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, capture and destroy its capital city of Samaria, and send the Israelites into exile. Uh, Almost a couple hundred years later, in 586 BC, he used the nation of Babylon to attack the southern kingdom of Judah, capture and destroy its capital city of Jerusalem, and send those people, the people of Judah, into exile. Now, Obadiah seems to be describing this Babylonian invasion and the fall of Jerusalem in these verses that we just read. Nine different times in these uh, four verses, in verses 11 through 14, Obadiah references that event as the day, right? Three of those times he calls it the day of their disaster. Twice he calls it the day of distress. He also called it the day of Judah's calamity and the day of their destruction. Now the day, that phrase, it's a phrase often used in prophecy to refer to both near future and distant future acts of judgment carried out by God. 
And so while Obadiah's description here makes it clear that the people of Judah were experiencing God's judgment, it's also clear that God is holding the Edomites accountable for how they treated their brother nation when it was attacked by Babylon. And so we have to ask the question, how is it that God can hold Edom responsible for their actions if he's the one that used them along with the Babylonians as his instrument of judgment against Judah? Well, the answer comes when we understand the motives behind the actions. See, God's motives, God's purposes in punishing his people, they were good, they were right, they were just because he's holy and good and right and just. They were done in order to bring about repentance and restoration of his people. Edom's purposes were wicked and evil and self-exalting because they were a prideful nation. They had no intention of seeing Judah restored. In fact, they wanted to see Judah destroyed. And so what was the violence then that they did to their brother Jacob? Well, Obadiah gives the rap sheet, right? It says, first they stood aloof. It's a fun word. What does it mean? It says they were uninterested. They, they didn't want to get involved. They didn't offer any military uh, 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 help, support to Jerusalem when the invaders came. Obadiah says that while the foreigners and strangers came into the city and ransacked it, Edom did nothing. And in fact, Edom wasn't acting like a brother in that sense to Jacob. They were acting just like the foreigners and strangers themselves. He says, you were just like one of them, or you were just like them. And then Obadiah uses a literary device to emphasize Edom's guilt. In verses 12 through 14, he uses the phrase, do not eight times. Now, he's writing about past events in the present tense in order to trigger our attention, uh, the reader's attention, that Edom's already disobeyed each one of these divine commands. It would be like if you saw somebody, like if there was fresh paint on the wall here and you saw somebody lean up against it and then they pulled away and they saw the paint on their shirt and you're like, hey, hey, don't lean up against that wall, right? There's an element of satire to it. There's a, there's a little bit of sarcasm in that. Clearly, they've done it already. This is what... The tone, uh, this is Obadiah's tone here. He's saying, do not, do not, do not, even though they already have. And so we could read that phrase, do not, as if uh, it says, you should not have. He's ridiculing them. Now, he's a prophet speaking the very words of God. So he's allowed to do that, okay? Because this is God's word. God in his holiness is pointing out the glaring shortcomings of Edom. The Edomites not only did nothing to help Judah when Jerusalem was invaded, they actually celebrated the destruction of it. They gloated, they rejoiced, they boastfully mocked their brother nation and even went so far as to join in the looting of Judah's possessions and keep people from escaping by cutting them off at the crossroads. They knew where they would run to and so they went there too. And then they catch, captured them and they handed over, them over to their Babylonian invaders, their captors. This is utter betrayal, right? From one family to the, uh, from a family member. Even though the Edomites were not included in, with the Israelites as God's covenant people, they shared a common lineage with the Israelites, with Judah. And, and God promised to bless all the nations through Israel. This is the covenant, right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Israel. I'll make you great, more numerous than the stars in the sky. 
I will bless the nations through your seed, right? And so they should have helped a brother out. But they weren't thinking about their brother. Edom was thinking about themselves. As people created by God in his image, we need to understand this. All of humanity shares a common brotherhood and sisterhood. Over every other created thing, we stand alone as those created in in God's image. And so when we see one person mistreating another, that should trigger in us a God-given sense of both justice and compassion. Justice to stand up against the, the person who's taking advantage of their fellow man, their fellow sister, brother. And compassion to come to the aid of our fellow man or woman who's been mistreated. What does it say about us if our reaction to human suffering and mistreatment is to stand aloof and do nothing to help? And because we share a common brotherhood and sisterhood with every human being, for us as believers, that also ought to cause us to think about how we treat those with whom we disagree. Is it right for us to gloat and rejoice when they suffer or, and, and mockingly declare that they're getting what they deserve? Or should we treat them with dignity and love as fellow human beings made in God's image? Even as we firmly hold to the truths of Scripture, doesn't Christ's love compel us to plead with them to be reconciled to God? And if we ought to maintain love and patience and humility toward those who don't follow Christ, how much more so then should we have that attitude toward those who do follow Christ? We need to understand that when we mistreat our brothers and sisters in the Lord, we're behaving like the enemies of God. Because God's enemies oppose God's people. Instead, we ought to heed Paul's words in Galatians 6.10. It says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all. Of all. Especially for those who belong to the household of faith. And that's exactly what Edom failed to do. They assumed that Jacob's day of judgment was permanent, that God was was changing his mind about his people and destroying them completely. They thought that God had abandoned his people, and so they, they relished their brother's downfall, not realizing that they would ultimately be the ones to fall. That leads us then to Edom's day of judgment. To do that, we need to actually back up to verses 8 and 9. I don't know if you caught this last week or not, but it says, in that day... This is the Lord's declaration. Will I not eliminate the wise ones of Edom and those who understand from the hill country of Esau? Taman, your warriors will be terrified so that everyone from the hill country of Esau will be destroyed by slaughter. There's that phrase again, in that day, verse 8. It's pointing to Edom's coming day of judgment. Edom wanted to eliminate the people of Judah, but God will eliminate Edom instead. This is what he says. Jeremiah, the prophet, he was a major prophet because he wrote a lot of stuff. He wrote the book of Lamentations, and he wrote this about Edom. Concerning Edom, says, So rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom, you resident of the land of Uz. Yet the cup will pass to you as well. You will get drunk and expose yourself. Daughter Zion, your punishment is complete. He will not lengthen your exile, but he will punish your iniquity 
daughter Edom and will expose your sins. Ezekiel was another prophet and he wrote this. Because you said, these two nations and these two lands will be mine and we will possess them. Though the Lord was there, therefore as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I will treat you according to the anger and jealousy you showed in your hatred of them. I will make myself known among them when I judge you. When, then you will know that I, the Lord, have heard all the blasphemies you uttered against the mountains of Israel, saying they are desolate. They have been given over to us to devour. You boasted against me with your mouth and spoke many words against me. I heard it myself. This is what the Lord God says. While the whole world rejoices, I will make you a desolation. Just as you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it became a desolation, I will deal the same way with you. You will become a desolation, Mount Seir, which is another name for Edom. And so will all Edom in its entirety. Then they will know that I am the Lord. How terrifying are those words if you're an Edomite? How comforting are those words if you're an Israelite? Did you catch what God revealed about his relationship with Israel here? He identifies with his people so much that he takes Edom's treatment of Israel personally. Any words spoken against God's people are words spoken against God himself. He said, you blasphemed, or you, you spoke blasphemies against them. And then right after that, he said, you spoke blasphemies against me. I heard it myself. We see this in the New Testament as well. When Jesus blinded Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul, he was on the road to Damascus. He got blinded. People around him heard thunder, right? He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What was Saul doing? He was on his way to persecute God's people. He was on his way to persecute Christians. Jesus says, you're persecuting me. You see, our Lord feels our pain as his own. And he intervenes on our behalf. He will not overlook injustice done to us because it is injustice done to him. And he is holy and righteous and just. Edom opposed God's people, and that meant that Edom opposed God, and God would judge Edom for it. Obadiah prophesied Edom's destruction. And then that prophecy began to be fulfilled in 553 B.C. when the Babylonians attacked Edom itself. First they came in and, and, and got Jerusalem. And Edom was like, yeah, go for it. And then Babylonians came and did the same thing to Edom. And then over the next several hundred years, they're attacked and subdued by the Persians, by the Nabataeans. And then even the Jews during the Maccabean revolt in the early 2nd century B.C. After, after Babylon conquered Judah destroyed Jerusalem and deported its people, the Edomites began to move from their hill country into that vacant territory in southern Judah. And that area was eventually renamed Idumea. That was the Greek name for Edom. Here's where it gets really interesting. This is where I nerd out. Okay? Herod the Great was an Edomian. He's a descendant of Esau. Now, he's also the one that was put in charge by the Roman government over the Jews in the first century A.D. 
and he took the self-proclaimed title King of the Jews, right? Now in Matthew 2, it says that after Jesus was born, wise men came from the east to the king, to King Herod and asked, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? And he's like, I don't know. If you find him, let me know. I want to come worship him too. But what did he really want to do? He wanted to kill him. And in an outrage, King Herod gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under in order to make sure that the young boy Jesus would be killed. Don't gloss over that. He massacred children so that he could retain the self-given title, King of the Jews. Once again, we have a descendant of Esau trying to kill a descendant of Jacob. But we know that Herod's attempt failed, and when Jesus was a teenager, this King Herod, the, the king of the Jews, he died of renal failure. And when Jesus was arrested and put on trial before his crucifixion, Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus was questioned by, by Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the son of King Herod the Great. And it says that Herod Antipas treated Jesus with contempt and, and mocked him. Sounds like the Edomites, right? Enemies of God. Edom's final demise came in 70 AD when the Romans invaded and destroyed Jerusalem and eliminated the remaining Edomites along with it. There's no historical evidence of Edom after that. None. You know what's interesting? As I typed out my sermon notes on, in my word processor, every time I typed the word Edom, it would underline it. The spell check would underline it. Didn't recognize it. Why? Because it doesn't exist. It's not there anymore. If you, if you type in Edomite, you can search that. But it says, people of an ancient world or of an ancient civilization. You see, God kept his promise to destroy Edom because they wanted to destroy his people because of the violence they did to their brother Jacob. God takes injustice very seriously, especially when it's committed against his people. Genesis 18 tells us that he is the judge of the whole earth who will do what is just. And Obadiah reveals that it's not just Edom that will be judged, but every nation. And that leads us to the nation's judgment day. Look at verse 15, 16. For the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and gulp down and be as though they had never been. Last week, we saw that God opposes the proud and will bring them low. This week, we see that God opposes those who oppose his people, and he will bring total justice against anyone who treats his people unjustly. Every nation will face judgment, and the standard with which God will use to judge them is this principle known as retributive justice. It says it in verse 15. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. See, the penalty will match the crime, but it will be fair, and it will be deserved. 
Proverbs 22, 8 says, The one who sows injustice will reap disaster, and the rod of his fury will be destroyed. The same principle is found in the New Testament. Galatians 6, 7 and 8. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap, because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. There's hope in here. Don't miss that. Edom tried to make Judah insignificant among the nations, so God said to Edom, look, I will make you insignificant among the nations. Obadiah verse 2. Edom appropriated Judah's possessions in the day of their disaster. Verse 13. So God said, how Esau will be pillaged, its hidden treasures searched out. Verse 6. Edom stood at the crossroads and they they cut off Judah's fugitives and and handed them over to be slaughtered by by the Babylonians. Verse 14. So God said that Edom's allies would trap them, deceive and conquer them, and drive them to the the border. Verse 7. And they would be destroyed by slaughter. Verse 8, verse 9, excuse me. You see that? What you have done, what you deserve, will return on your own head. God judged. God judged. He may have judged them too. I don't know what that means. He judged Edom according to what they deserved. And in the final day of the Lord, when Christ returns, he, he will come as judge. And he will judge every nation that has rebelled against him and repay every nation according to what they deserve. You see, we look at the history of Edom, we can look at the history of all the nations that have ever come to be since the beginning of creation. Great nations have risen and great nations have fallen. Each one of them has experienced at least a partial judgment for its rejection of God. And ultimately, every one of them will experience a final judgment for its rejection of God. Our own nation is not exempt from this. We must be careful not to assume that because America is a superpower in the world now, that it will always be that way. We are not the standard of justice in the world. God is. Edom wasn't a superpower. It's 20 miles wide and 100 miles long. Look what happened to it. Any nation that commits acts of injustice against God's people will be held accountable by God for those acts. Now that should comfort us as believers living in a society that's growing increasingly more hostile toward those who hold to biblical Christianity. And it should help us prepare to endure harsher trials and persecutions should those things come to us in the future. But it should also compel us to think about how we ought to live in our society now. We ought to pray for our country and, and its leaders because we want them to thrive. We ought to ask God to help them understand and believe that it's to their benefit not to oppose God's people and God's gospel. But we also ought to ask God to help us focus our efforts on the right things. Is our priority first to live in a Christian nation or is it to live as Christians in the nation? Do you spend more time appealing to our founding fathers or to our heavenly father? 
Do you spend more time defending the liberties granted to us by our Constitution or proclaiming the freedoms granted to us by the gospel of Jesus Christ? How you answer those questions will reveal a lot about what you're prioritizing. You see, we ought to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the biblical command. We ought to seek the good of all mankind and the betterment of our societies. It's for the good. It's a reflection of God's care in the world. But we ought to do those things living as strangers and exiles in this world and as citizens of heaven, living our lives worthy of the gospel as we eagerly wait our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, God disciplined his people for prioritizing their relationships with the nations over their relationship with him. Their punishment for breaking the covenant and serving other gods, it was harsh. He took the land away. He, he sent them away. He brought other, other nations in. Brought them to ruin. But he never totally left them. They experienced God's righteous wrath against them for their sin. But because they were God's people, his wrath would not be against them forever. And even though he used the nations as his agents of wrath against his people, those nations themselves would become the objects of his wrath because of their injustice. In the first 15 verses, Obadiah uses the word you in the singular form to refer to the nation of Edom as a whole. You, 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 you. Verse 16 for the first time, that you is plural, and it acts as this brief redirect to address God's people themselves. Obadiah uses a common metaphor found all throughout Scripture that refers to receiving God's wrath as drinking from a cup. It says, as you have drunk on my holy mountain, the people of Judah drank the cup of God's wrath on his holy mountain, Jerusalem, a.k.a. Mount Zion. When the Babylonians invaded the city and destroyed it and sent God's people into exile, that was the cup they drank. Psalm 60 verse 3 says, You have made your people suffer hardship. You've been, you have given us wine to drink and that made us stagger. But God would not make his people drink the cup forever. Isaiah 51, 22, 23 says, This is what your Lord says. The Lord, even your God, who defends his people, Look, I have removed from your hand the cup that causes staggering, that goblet, the cup of my fury. You will never drink it again. I will put it into the hands of your tormentors who said to you, lie down so we can walk over you. You made your back like the ground and like, the, like a street for those who walk on it. As Judah drank the cup of God's wrath temporarily on his holy mountain, Obadiah says, so will all the nations drink continually. They will drink and gulp down and be as though they had never been. Psalm 75, 8. For there is a cup in the Lord's hand, full of wine, blended with spices, and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs. This is not just flowery language. This is not just a poem. This is God's word. This is his promise. He will right all the wrongs. All the nations will be judged, but every nation is made up of people, right? 
And that means that every person who opposes God's people will be judged by God. And so that, that brings us to one last day of judgment that we need to look at. Yours and mine. When will that be? The answer depends on whether you're one of God's enemies or one of his people. As Christians, we are God's new covenant people through Christ. We were once God's enemies, children under wrath, until God sent us his one and only son in love. Jesus didn't stand aloof while we were being ravaged and enslaved by our sin. He didn't boastfully mock us in our distress or gloat over our misery. He didn't hand us over to the enemy. Instead, he came to our rescue. He entered the city gates of Jerusalem not to pillage and plunder, not to set up an earthly kingdom, but to endure the mocking and the boasting of his brothers the Jewish religious leaders who shared a common lineage with him. They handed him over to their enemy, the Romans, who crucified him as a traitor. But at the cross, it was Christ who willingly drank the cup of God's wrath against us down to the dregs, to the very last drop, so that we could be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God once and for all. And God rose him from the grave to show that he accepted Christ's payment on our behalf, on behalf of anyone who would come to him in faith. I've heard it put this way. I love this. I wish I knew who, who quoted it. If you're a believer, your judgment day happened at Calvary on the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself makes this clear in John five twenty four. He says, truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is the word of the Lord. But this also makes something else clear. If you're not a believer, if you reject Christ and his words, then your day of judgment is still yet to come. And as you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. God will repay you according to what you've done against him and his people and against his son, Jesus Christ. And no amount of good works you do for humanity will make up for that. No amount of works that you do will save you from his judgment. Only the good and complete work that Christ has done can do that. So why not cry out and confess your need for Jesus? God's word is true. What he promised to do to Edom, he did it. Jesus is God. And he promised in the Gospel of John that he won't turn away anyone who comes to him. He won't. He also said that anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned. Why would you want to remain under condemnation when God's word promises that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Why bear the shame of Edom when God's word promises, promises that everyone who trusts in Christ will not be put to shame? Why would you want your judgment day to be still yet to come when it can be finished already at the cross of Christ? You know what you do?
You repent. And you believe. You believe what God has said. You turn from your sin and you trust in him. I pray that you would do that today. This is what everyone who is now part of God's people have done. We believe God. We take him at his word. And we trust that what he says will come to pass will. As believers who've been called to share the hope of the gospel in the world around us, we have to include this kind of news. We have to say the hard things of God's coming judgment in order for his salvation to be fully seen as good news. We cannot stand aloof while people perish in their sin. We cannot gloat over those who remain under God's wrath. Instead, we must rejoice in the mercy that God has shown us and tell them how they can receive it too. We need to know the gospel so we can share it. Don't stand at the crossroads and cut off those who are fleeing for their lives in the day of distress. Stand at the cross and beckon them to come. To come and find the freedom and the refuge that only Christ can provide. Enemies of God's people are enemies of God. And God will bring devastating judgment on all his enemies. If we take that reality seriously, then we'll take the gospel seriously. And we will open our mouths and we will share it with others as God has commanded us to do. So as those who were once God's enemies but have now been reconciled to him in Christ, let's endure injustice done to us knowing that God will bring exact justice to match it. And let's plead with God's enemies to be reconciled to God so that when the day of the Lord finally comes and it's coming, like us, they'll get to stand face to face with God himself, not finding judgment, but mercy. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you're holy and just. And that a day is coming when all the wrongs will be made right. We thank you that you're good. That you are not unjust. Lord, we recognize though that we are, apart from Christ, condemned to that judgment. So we rejoice that you have given us sanctuary, refuge, freedom, redemption, forgiveness in Jesus. Lord, may there not be a soul in this room that doesn't long for that. And may there not be a soul in this room that isn't comforted by knowing Christ himself. For your glory and our good, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.